0: We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit LeadingSaints.org liberating.
1: My name is Kaylee, and I'm from Mesa, Arizona, and I found the Leading Saints podcast about six or seven years ago. And at the time, it really helped me when I was living out of the country, and I was able to find resources that helped me serve and the callings that I was serving in a foreign country. And more recently, I found help with the Mentally Healthy Saints Summit. And was able to find some personal applications to it and was actually able to lead to a diagnosis of OCD for myself. That has been life changing for me and has been a huge help to see how that relates to me and my relationship with Heavenly Father and with those around me and also my relationship with myself and how I can be a better disciple of Jesus Christ.
0: Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead, and we do that through content creation, like this podcast which we hope you will subscribe to. We also have a website at leadingsaints.org with thousands of incredible articles all about leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. We host virtual summits, live events, and also have a weekly newsletter to keep you up to date on all things happening with Leading Saints. Visit leadingsaints.org for more information. Welcome back to another episode of the Questioning Saints Virtual Summit that we're also going to share on our podcast. We have a library full of interviews similar to this with scholars or individuals who have a unique perspective about ministering to individuals who are or who have begun to question their faith. You know, this is a tough topic for many people, and sometimes we don't know how to approach it, and so we tend to avoid it altogether. And today I have the opportunity to connect with Professor Carrie Muelstein. How are you, Carrie?
2: I'm good. How are you today?
0: Very good. Very good. Well, and I'm excited to have uh, this conversation. We're recording this December of 2021, and I think next month, the first part of 2022, you have a new book coming out. Is that right?
2: Uh, That's right. It's, uh, you know, Desiree Book is doing this kind of Let's Talk About series that is aimed at taking some tough issues that people struggle with and just being honest and forthright and having open conversations about them. Uh, So I've got one called Let's Talk About the Book of Abraham."
0: Awesome. And these aren't like textbooks, heavy reads. No. They fit in your back pocket, and hopefully it's something more condensed that people can read and and learn from very quickly, right? Yeah, they're very small and
2: very readable. Yeah. And as a scholar, was it difficult to do? Yeah. No, it was really tricky to keep to their their word count, and I think I I went uh, a little bit over the word count, but not much. it took a lot of editing and a lot of feedback from people to try and figure out what's the most important, what should we, should we do we have to keep in, what can we cut out, and so on. So yeah, it was it was tricky, but we, we did it, I think. So I had a lot of help to do it.
0: Cool. And if people aren't familiar with you and your background, maybe just introduce yourself to the listening audience and what brings you to write a book about the book of Abraham?
2: Sure. Uh, so I teach ancient scripture at, at BYU or Brigham Young University. Um, I have uh, uh, like a minor in biblical Hebrew as an undergrad and then a master's in ancient Near and studies in biblical Hebrew. And then my uh, PhD was in uh, Egyptology with a secondary emphasis of Hebrew language and literature. So uh, anywhere where the Bible and, and the world of Egypt meet, that's a place that I'm really happy and, and love to be. And then, of course, the book of Abraham fits really into that well. I I didn't actually intend to do anything with the book of Abraham when I started the PhD program. Um, By the time I was done, I just kept having people that asked me questions and I thought, oh, I better learn a little something about the controversy and the questions people have to be able to answer them. Uh, So I was just kind of doing that a little bit the last years of my program and uh, have just had so many people so often asking me questions that I I just decided, you know, we need to to be able to answer these questions. And uh, it's become uh, probably the largest um, research uh, agenda I've had uh, ever since And So for about 20, 25 years, something, well, let's see here. About 21 years, I would guess we could say, uh, it's been um, a major part of my research agenda.
0: Yeah, that's great. So let's just jump into this conversation, and I'll also mention that you're currently serving as a bishop, and so that will uh, that context may jump in here as as we uh, as most leaders sometimes have conversations about these specific doctrines that sometimes individuals grapple with. And so, let's just uh, let me sh- just share my understanding as sort of the the lay Latter Day Saint. Now, this book you've written is definitely more the type of book I would pick up regarding the the Book of Abraham, rather than some you know study or research paper about the Book of Abraham. So, let me just unpack what I see relates to the Book of Abraham, and you can maybe add to as far as what people generally understand. So. So the Book of Abraham is a translation that Joseph Smith did all related to a mummy. I believe that the Smith family or the church bought and from that we get the Book of Abraham. And there are some uh, there, there what are those pictures called again?
2: Uh, well, we call them uh, Egyptologists call them vignettes, but we we have in the scriptures facsimiles of the vignettes. So yeah, there's a yeah. facsimile of the drawing that was on the papyrus. So yeah. So we have these
0: facsimiles, and often the criticism is that if Egyptologists look at these facsimiles, they don't really see it connecting to the Book of Abraham, and then it creates this, this, these doubts of, well, was Joseph Smith just making this up, or was this, um, or was the papyri just something that inspired Joseph Smith to write the Book of Abraham that Abraham did write, but. Is it just a source or whatnot? And so for me, I think of members, you know, I'm not the type that maybe this is really deep a deep problem for me. I just sort of say, you know, I have a deep conviction of Joseph Smith was a prophet. I'm not sure I'm not sure just how all of it worked, but I sure gain a lot of understanding and doctrine from reading the book of Abraham, and so I'm good. So how else would you add to that perspective? Or correct me if I'm wrong, as far as how a general Latter-day Saint sees the book of Abraham and then where does the the concerns come from there?
2: So some some great questions, and maybe we can just say uh, that as we do this, I'm I'm hoping we not only can talk specifically about the Book of Abraham, but about some principles that will help with all sorts of concerns that people might come to bishops or other leaders with. All right, these are our general principles that can apply to all sorts of things besides this just situation, but. Um, uh, I think you've, you've got that basically right. So Joseph Smith ends up with some uh, papyri. He ends up having to buy the mummies because he wants the papyri, and the person who's selling them is going to sell them as a package or, or not at all. Um, but it's the papyri that are of particular interest, and um, uh, he translates, uh, we think, from the papyri. That's one of the technical questions we can get into if we want. Um, but he, he translates by the gift and power of God. It's, that's the clear part. We don't know the, the method of translation any more than we know. Uh, well, actually less than we know with the Book of Mormon. So with the Book of Mormon, we know he's using a Yeram and Thummim and a, another seer stone that he uses. He may or may not be using that with the Book of Abraham. Um, there are kind of two phases of working on the Book of Abraham. One, when he first gets the papyri in 1835, and another uh, when he publishes it in 1842. We have some people say he's using... Um, they say the Yeram Thummim, but by that time, that's what they're calling the seer stone. So he's using that uh, seer stone in 1842. We don't have anyone that we can know for sure is talking about that in 1835. So we don't know if he uses it when he's doing that initial and, and I think probably the bulk of the translation. Uh, so we don't know anything about how the translation happens other than by the gift and power of God. Uh, there are, are uh, some some people who think that maybe the writings weren't on the papyri at all. Um, that the papyri just served as, as a catalyst. We often call this the catalyst theory, um, okay. that the papyri served uh, he j- just as a catalyst to open his mind to receiving inspiration similar to uh, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, where he opens the first you know couple chapters of the book of Genesis. And that just serves as a catalyst to him receiving inspiration that uh, we now have as the book of Moses, right? So that's it it's just opens him to inspiration and he receives it um there's some pretty good uh i guess you could say data or indicators that it is actually on the papyrus uh, and that's where some of the controversy comes uh, from that we can talk about in a second but uh but that there's some he certainly talks about it being on the papyrus and he acts as if it's on the papyrus and he says he's translating from the papyrus so it is either on the papyrus um or he assumes it's on the papyrus because when he looks at it, he gets this inspiration from heaven. So those are really our two major theories.
0: So is there any evidence that shows like if if we were to get in a time machine, go back and ask Joseph Smith, did you do you believe this is a little translation from the papyrus? Would he think that was the case?
2: I think so. He he uh a couple of times in things he writes or in sermons or in things people report that he said and there is a difference between those right we've got like first hand mm-hmm. accounts and then second hand accounts. But um there are a number of places where he talks about I'm getting this from the papyrus in my office uh or at my home. So uh yeah, I think uh I think he would tell us he was translating from the papyri.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned the um, the catalyst theory um, is there are there like distinctive theories around the book of Abraham that are, would be worth sort of just highlighting uh, as we
2: yeah there there are two main ones, so a lot of it comes down to this papyrus business, right? So unlike the gold plates uh, where we know those are gone and we can't check them to see what's on them, uh, we do have a couple of fragments that remain from the papyri that Joseph Smith owned. We thought that they all had been burned in the Great Chicago fire. So herein lies a kind of a fun little tale. All right. So we, we just need story time for a minute. Um, uh, Joseph Smith, when he acquires the papyri, we know he has a larger role and, and a smaller role. It still must be fairly large because it's got a, a copy of the Book of Breathings, which is fairly decent-sized text. Um, and it's at least part of that co- the book of breathing. So we've got he's got two rolls of papyri. And then some fragments. Uh, we don't know how many. And then at some point, he seems to cut off some fragments from one of the rolls. It seems like, we can't tell that for sure, but it seems like he cuts some fragments off and glues them to paper, mounts them under glass, presumably to protect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has these his entire life. Well, that's gets them, you know, life. Uh, then his mother... Uh, inherits them as, in a way and she supports herself by showing them to people and they pay her 25 cents to see them she was doing that while joseph was alive um and when uh, she dies then we get uh emma smith uh who lucy mack smith had been living with there towards the end emma smith inherits them and she sells them in about two weeks and um the, they're sold to a man named abel combs and abel combs eventually sells the the large rolls of papyrus so the two scrolls he sells those to the st louis museum and they show them for quite a while we can document all of this and then uh, they sell them to a museum in chicago and they have them there and they're showing them and then the great chicago fire comes along and that museum burns and uh and they burn they're they're part of we can document what's in the catalog of what they had before and what survived after and they're not in the list of what survived papyri are very flammable. Uh, I mean, they're basically like, like paper, right? So yeah. if there's flame around, they'll burn. Um, and so for a long time, we thought that all of Joseph Smith's papyri had burned, but it turns out he'd given these mounted fragments to Abel Combs had given his, the mounted fragments to his housekeeper, a woman named Charlotte Weaver. And she gave them to her daughter and eventually, um, her, her daughter, son-in-law and his son sold them to the Met, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, So there were they had uh, 10 fragments, and they eventually gave these when they, well, they recognized what they were right away, but it took about 20 years for them to feel like they had a contact uh, with the church, and they then donated them to the church. When they did, the church said, oh, hey, we've got this other thing. We didn't know what it is. Now we can tell it's another fragment. So we have 11 fragments. Hmm. And that's where part of the rub comes in, because the original of facsimile one. So this this vignette of this drawing that facsimile one is a facsimile of it's on that papyrus uh, on one of the fragments, fragment one. So uh, we give them all numbers, uh, these different fragments. So fragment one has that original and it has some text around it. And so everyone makes the assumption that ah, Joseph Smith must be translating from the text adjacent to the papyrus uh, or or adjacent to, sorry, the the text on the papyrus adjacent to that drawing or that that vignette or the facsimile. Um, And when we translate that that today, we couldn't in Joseph Smith's day, but today we can translate that. And it's a fairly common funerary text uh, called the Book of Breathings. So that's one of the places that people stumble is because they have either made the assumption or they've heard someone make the assumption and they just believe them. That Joseph Smith was translating from that text adjacent to the drawing, and uh, and then when we say, well, it doesn't say anything about Abraham, then they say, oh, Joseph Smith must have been making it up, and they don't ever stop to realize that this is all based on an assumption, right? And when we test the assumption, and there are some different ways of testing the assumption, uh, it turns out not to be a good assumption. We have I went to talk about him translating from the large roll, not from these, these fragments. And that's after the fragments have been mounted and so on. So you have several different ways of testing it. And uh, some of them, you know, this we don't want to get too technical, but some of them suggest it's not necessarily a good um, theory or assumption to say that he's translating that text next to the drawing. But when we look at what the eyewitnesses said, uh, it's not 100% ironclad. If you want to kind of say, well, maybe they meant this, maybe they meant that if we twist it this way, then maybe they mean this. But if you just take what they said at face value, uh, and there are several of them that that agree on the same thing, and so you really have to have, as a historian, you'd have to have some good reason to not take it at face value, and we we don't. So uh, his, historically, we can say that it's most, it's almost certain that these eyewitnesses are saying that Joseph Smith is translating from elsewhere on the papyri. So that means that everyone who's had their their testimony kind of shaken over this whole text next to the drawing uh it's shaken on a bad assumption uh, and that's where much of the problem comes is from that that issue
0: gotcha and uh and so that's sort of more of a there's sort of this tr- if you go directly with a, a direct translation theory that's where people may get tripped up a little bit
2: yeah so that that leads to what we call the missing papyrus theory all right. So oh, the okay. missing papyrus theory is that Joseph translated from actually on the papyri, but from stuff that's missing today that was burned in the in the fire. And as I said, the eyewitnesses talk about him translating from that larger role, and we know the larger role burned in that fire. Mm-hmm. So that missing papyrus theory has some really good evidence behind it. The catalyst theory is the other most common theory, uh, among believers. Among non believers, the theory is Joseph Smith just made it up, but uh uh among believers the the catalyst theory i mean there's some decent evidence because there are a couple times when joseph talks about working with the book of abraham where he uses language that sounds somewhat revelatory like he says the principles unfolded to us that sounds somewhat revelatory but really it's we don't have enough data to tell
0: yeah yeah so uh, walk us through like let's shift into for a minute or step out into a leadership context for a minute and and, and talking with bishop mulstein here if someone comes in with this concern, uh, obviously they probably know who you are and they think, wow, I'm so glad I have this vision. <laughs> but, but let's say you, you don't have the, the, the background that you have and someone walks in like, from your professional background, what advice would you give to, to a leader help, trying to help someone who has some deep concerns about the book of Abraham?
2: Great question. Um, and I think, and, and I actually have a chapter on this in the uh, book, but I think one of the things we have to help people understand is what do they know? And what do they not know? And how do they know it? So, you know, academically, we'd call this epistemology. How do you know or how do you learn things? Um, and uh, so I have a friend who's a, a, a 19th century historian who is also serving as a bishop who had some people that had this question. And he, he told me, I thought this was so wise. He said the first thing he had them do was write down the things that they actually know about this. And they wrote down a bunch of stuff and he went through with them. and He said, no, no, we don't know that. We don't know that we don't know that those are all things that we're kind of guessing at from these facts and from this information but what do we actually know and in the end there's not that much right we we know we had papyri is he translated from it or not and so on um, and then we can ask ourselves what are the different ways of of learning right and if you go through different ways of learning that we, we talk about learning from authority Right. So from an expert on the subject and and or we could call it the academic method. Uh, there's uh, in epistemolo- epistemological terms, there's what we call the intuitive method and, and inspiration and revelation would fit in there. Um, and there are some things we can know about the book of Abraham from both methods. But uh, and this is one of the things that as I wrote this book, I, I came back to again and again, each issue. Um, It turns out we really just don't have enough data Uh, as uh, academically speaking, we don't have enough data to make solid conclusions. And so we're left to say that the academic method isn't properly fitted or suited to help us reach a conclusion on this matter. It just doesn't have the ability. It's not that it's not worth pursuing. It's not that it's not worth looking into. Uh, It's just that it doesn't have that capability. Whereas the revelatory method, which I think is absolutely a valid method of learning, and, and we've got to come back to that in just a second. But the revelatory method does have the capability of, of giving us an answer on this question. Now, let's let's come back to that uh, validity of the revelatory method. And I think this is often, whether it's the book of Abraham or you know polygamy or other historical matters, or even today, uh you know uh women in the priesthood same-sex marriage whatever the concerns are a lot of it comes down to the validity of the revelatory method and the world wants to just poo-poo that it wants to say that is not a valid method of learning Uh, and they want to dismiss it and and belittle it right and and they have to stand in a great and spacious building and point a mocking finger at it Uh, and i think we can't yield on that issue we can't say, well, let's let's only rely on what we can figure out through the academic method. Uh, the academic method is actually a less trustworthy and, and uh, less reliable method of learning. As academics, we know that much of what we think we know today, we're going to find out is wrong tomorrow. Uh, I have to write to refute myself. You know, every, every good academic will have to at some point do that, say, OK, what we thought before uh, we now know is wrong. But that doesn't happen with revelation. Uh, and so we can't let you know, but Paul says that the things of God are only understood by uh, by the spirit of God and that the, those of the world will not be able to understand the God. So we need to understand that if someone has not had a revelatory experience, then, of course, they are going to dismiss inspiration or revelation. But if you have had inspiration or revelation, then, you know, it's real. And and so what, what happens often, I think, is that when we get those mocking fingers pointing at us, when we get people telling us that, that what you learned through inspiration about Joseph Smith isn't true, um, we tend to get embarrassed or ashamed. Hmm. and And we forget what we learned through the revelatory method. And we start to rely on the world. And then we make a huge mistake. And if I could say to anyone struggling, with any issue in the church. This is what I, to me is, is maybe the greatest key. We start, we stop doing those things that will allow us to learn from the revelatory method and we prioritize the academic method. Now, I would suggest you need to pursue both. Pursue both with all the abilities you have um, and recognize what one can do and what the other can do and, and what each one can't do. They're both important, they're both necessary. We should pursue both but know what each one will do, but don't stop doing those things that would allow you to learn our inflatory method. All right. So, so often people start reading everything they can online and whatever articles are listening to, uh, you know, this person or that person, and they stop doing the things that invite the spirit into their life. Uh, where what we need to do is, is exactly what you said at the beginning. Just keep reading the text of the book of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Keep reading that text and that allows this that you to have experience with the revelatory It's not going to come if you're not allowing it to come. Just as, as an example, um, this last summer, both at young and uh, the young men's high adventure, I just uh, I just sat down with my youth and we talked about you know the power of revelation and then the need to remember, that's a real key. In fact, the Book of Mormon teaches that all the time. You have to remember what you've learned through revelation because we're not going to fill the spirit every moment of every day. So we have to, and I made each one of them look me in the eye and commit to me that whatever happened in their life, whatever things they were struggling with, whether it was sin, uh, whether it was things they've heard about the church or they don't agree with the prophet on some political position or social issue or whatever it is, whatever happens in their life, When they start to look for answers, they can look anywhere they want and they should look all over the place, but they can't stop looking in the scriptures. And I made them promise me that they would keep reading in the Book of Mormon while they were looking for anywhere else for any kind of answer that they always had to spend equal time reading in the Book of Mormon. And I believe if we'll do that, and for the Book of Abraham questions, read the Book of Abraham as well. I believe if we'll do that, we'll have that revelatory method come and answer our questions sooner or later. Um, That that's that's going to be the key. Uh, So there are lots of other little things we could go through, but I think that's the biggest issue.
0: Yeah, I really like that this concept of the revelatory method because oftentimes an individual has maybe spent some time in the context of the scientific method and looking at the Book of Mormon through that scientific method uh, lens, and maybe things aren't lining up or. You know, there's some direct, you know, the translations that aren't lining up and, you know, maybe they're living in that direct translation theory world. And then they walked into the bishop's office in the context of the scientific method. And I think a good place to start is saying, you do understand in this office, we're generally speaking from a revelatory method where we seek inspiration and revelation from a divine source to hopefully answer some of our questions. Is that a good way to sum it up?
2: I, I think so. And I, but I don't think we want to discourage them from, right. from using, you know, seeking uh, learning from the best books. Right. That we're, we're counseled to do that. So if, if we say, OK, that is totally worthless and only do this, then we're going to lose a number of people. But if we can say do that, but let's let's look at what the limitations are. Right. How much data yeah. is there that we can look at in terms of the Book of Mormon? There's data that supports it as an authentic ancient document. And there's some questions that we don't quite know the answers to same thing with the book of Abraham I could go and I, and I have a chapter or two on this in the in the book, but I could go through all sorts of things where there's good data to show that it's authentically an ancient document but yeah. there are all systems that we can't quite answer so we need to recognize that yes we pursue the, this academic method but it has its limitations, so let's also pursue this other method and as you say, in the bishop's office, that's, that's what we're going to prioritize. But I think anytime we're dealing with the scriptures or the church in general, that's what we have to prioritize because it's the only method that is fully equipped to answer our questions. Whereas the other methods are only partially equipped.
0: Yeah. So obviously I'm a big fan of the revelatory method and it's blessed my life in so many ways, but it can also get really messy, right? Because for instance, stepping away from the book of Abraham to maybe a more, um, I don't, I don't know if controversial is the right, uh, the right word, but, uh, the topic of polygamy where there's sort of this right. more moral or immoral component about it. Like, why would a God ask that this of women of men, right. And it just doesn't yeah. sit right. And so through the revelatory method, I've heard many people sort of dismiss, you know, doctrine and Covenants 132, or just say like, well, that that was a mistake and that's just not right. And the spirit I've been, you know, the spirit has told me so like, and that's where, where it gets messy where it's like, well, yeah. I guess you went through the revelatory method and, and what do we do about that?
2: You're, you're right. And and for other things as well, I, I hear people say the same thing about same sex marriage. You're like, no, no, the spirits yeah. tell me I just need to be compassionate. And they equate. So they believe the world saying that, that, that equates with changing this, uh, you know, law of God or whatever. Um, yeah. I, I think you're, you're right that it can get a little bit messy. So we, we need to kind of get back to basics on that as well. And that's the idea of has the revelatory method told you that the Book of Mormon is true or that Joseph Smith is a prophet or that Russell M. Nelson is a prophet? And if you've had those experiences at some point, and I really encourage people when you have these revelatory experiences, write them down. Uh, because someday you're not going to be feeling it, but you can go back and read it and remember, I did have this experience. And usually that will bring the the experience back. But even if it doesn't. So here's another important issue. Um, Sometimes you're just not feeling the spirit and you haven't been for a while. And in particular, that's true for someone who is struggling with emotional or, or emotional or mental health issues. Um, they've often uh, just to try and deal with what's going on, kind of become numb to certain feelings and so on. And it's it's very difficult to feel the spirit. And so they in particular will need to rely. But anyone who's really struggling to feel the spirit at any given time will need to rely on times where they have felt the spirit in the past. Right. So that's like a little bit like me. I have been shocked by touching a live electrical wire. I don't need to touch it again. I can remember. My experience, and and that's good enough for me. I'm not I'm not going to go get yeah. shocked again, right? Um, so hopefully that can work for us with the revelatory method as well. That uh, I may not be feeling the spirit right now, but I did have that experience, and I'm going to operate based on that knowledge that I gained at that point. Um, and and so if we get back to those basics, Joseph Smith is a prophet, or the Book of Mormon is true, which really means Joseph Smith is a prophet, or Russell M Nelson is is a prophet. Which really means Joe Smith was, and if Joe Smith was, then Russell M. Nelson is right. So these are all kind of interconnected. If you know those basics, then these other things, you can you can just know they're they're going to work out. You may not know exactly how to square up with what you felt at this time or that time. You may not know exactly how to act on this particular thing or that thing, but you can stay comfortably and safely in in the the ship Zion, right, in in the church because you know those basic things that you've learned through the revelatory method. And that's true yeah. for the book of Abraham as well. I may not understand why Joseph Smith says this about the facts and lays and someone else says this and we can talk about that issue if you want, but I may not understand those things, but I do know Joseph Smith is a prophet. So that will work itself out at some point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I love this concept of just sort of going back to those those core beliefs, those those core experiences that helped spark the testimony in the first place. And and I think the and i I remember several instances as being that bishop. I'm looking across the desk and summoning, and in my mind, I'm thinking, you are completely wrong, like you are going in the direction that is not helpful for you, like you know and but yeah. at the same time, i didn't it wouldn't have been helpful for me to say, you're doing it wrong, you're thinking yeah. about it wrong, so just don't just listen to me, like I'm the bishop, so just yeah. listen to me right but and I think it's helpful for individuals or leaders to realize like God often takes individuals sort of on these journeys of, of a wrestle with faith and with concepts. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be solved in that appointment. And to just what they need most is maybe just that understanding that this Bishop will sit with me. This leader will be with me in this wrestle and there's no judgment. There's no you know uh, critique or anything, but it's like, yeah, these are really hard. I'm going to validate that what you're experiencing is really hard, but Let's just keep meeting and see what we can learn together. right?
2: I, I so, so, so agree. and see it's both from, uh, you know, having uh, from a bishop's perspective, but also from someone who has for decades had people come and sit in their office with questions about the book of Abraham and about other stuff. I think your reaction to them in the first 30 seconds either can give you the opportunity to help them or destroy that opportunity. And that reaction has to be, it's, it's okay that you're, asking these questions, right? We have a long history as a church, starting with Joseph Smith, in a- asking difficult questions, and in- struggling with what people were to and wanting to know the answer. That's what we're based on. So it's not a problem that someone has questions or that they're struggling with questions. The The real question then is, well, how are you going about finding an answer? Are you doing it like Joseph Smith, who, who asked everyone he could, studied the scriptures all he could, and also asked God, right? Or are you just seeking the world's opinions rather than also seeking God's opinions? But, but we have to help them feel like it's okay to ask questions. And I, like you said, I'm here with you. I'll go on this journey with you. Um, I think that's why it was so brilliant. What my, my friend did where he said, you write down the things that you know. So it wasn't him telling them, here's what you're doing. He forced them to go through this process a little bit on their own and and told them it's okay. I want to help you go through the process. I'm here yeah. to guide you and help you rather than tell you what you should think and what you should do. Um, yeah. I, I think that's really key.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to go back to that um, that tactic of like inviting the individual. Once I, like you said, like in the first part, just making them feel safe. Like this is a place I'm yeah. willing to talk about this. Um, and then, you know, that uh, that approach of inviting them to say, what do you know or what conclusions have you made? Let's write them down and just see what we can learn here. What would the typical, just from the different arguments you've heard online or with the the struggle, the faith struggles that people have in relation to the book of Abraham, what typically are people going to write down on that list of what
2: they think they know or what they've concluded? So there are the two things that are the most common things. They're both incorrect, but they're what will be written down. One is we know that what Joseph Smith translated from doesn't say anything about the book of Abraham. And we've already gone through that. That's. That's not yeah. what he's translating from, but people think they know that, right? And the other is, we know that what Joseph Smith said about the facsimiles doesn't square with what the ancient Egyptians would have believed, and uh, and so he's not a, a prophet, right? And that's also based on a lot of, of suppositions. Uh, one, we don't know Smith is telling us what the average ancient Egyptian would have believed. Um, he may have been telling us what— uh, it, it, abraham's descendants a group of jews who uh and we know they took different uh egyptian elements different different, uh egyptian drawings and stories and gave them a different jewish interpretation so he may have been telling us that we know there was a group of priests uh, from the time that these papyri were created that were taking jewish stories and reworking them into egyptian stories so maybe joseph smith is telling us uh how that group would have interpreted them maybe he's just telling us what we should get out of them regardless of what anyone in the ancient world would have gotten out of them. And, and then even the assumption that uh, we know what the ancient, ancient Egyptians would have thought about them is problematic. There aren't any ancient Egyptians around to ask. There are only Egyptologists. And uh, so just as an example, um, the, the kind of drawing that facsimile to it, we call it a hypocephalus. Uh, there have been disagreements about uh, from Egyptologists as to what this figure means and what this figure means and so on. For a number of years, it's kind of falling into two different camps, so kind of two mainstreams of thought. And then uh, my friend and colleague at BYU, John Gee, who's one of the world's leading experts on these kind of drawings, he finally found one where the Egyptians themselves labeled um, a number of these characters. And in the majority of the cases, the Egyptologists were wrong. Right? Now, he's an Egyptologist and I'm an Egyptologist, so I'll say we were wrong. Uh, we, we were incorrect as to what they were supposed to be. So it's also a faulty assumption to say that we even know what the ancient Egyptians would have thought. So we have all these assumptions that people write down. I know this and therefore this when really they don't know that. And that's that's part of what we have to help them see. Same thing uh, with uh, you could say, well, what do you know? And and people write down things they know about what God would or wouldn't say and what is right or wrong and so on. Right. We just have to kind of say, okay let's, let's ask real questions. How do we know these things? And that hopefully leads us into this discussion about how can we learn and how can we know? Yeah. So I have a, a
0: random question uh, yeah. that maybe is a bit naive or I should have learned it maybe in seminary, but if, you know, if, uh, if the translation theory is, is maybe more accurate, like what, what connection would the prophet Abraham have to Egypt that his writings or whatnot would actually end up
2: with a mummy uh, great question and and uh we've been working on this a bunch lately in fact it's kind of fun to to do, do this interview all today i've been kind of revising an article for uh, an Egyptological journal having to do with uh th- this group of priests that i was talking about and how their their interactions with that drawing that's facsimile one just from Egyptological perspective but it really matches this yesterday i was working on exactly your question uh, revising an article, uh, about, uh, this Jewish connection. So there are a number of times where the writings of Abraham could have come into Egypt, right? Abraham was in Egypt. Did he write then and leave his writings in Egypt and somehow they got passed down by Egyptians? Possibly. I, I think that's less likely, but possibly we know his descendants come in, right? His, his great grandson, Joseph, uh, comes to Egypt and then everyone comes to Egypt. So, do they stay in Egypt from that time forth? Possibly. There are also lots of times where groups of, of uh, Israelites or Judahites, uh, and, and we'll, uh, you know, up until the destruction of the kingdom of Israel, we can use those two different terms to describe them. After that uh, destruction, when it's only the people from the kingdom of Judah, usually we use the term Jewish academically. So, um, there are lots of times. When they came down uh, into uh, Egypt, uh, especially when uh, the Jews, when uh, Judah and Jerusalem were destroyed by the Babylonians, there was a huge group of Jews that came into Egypt. Jeremiah came to Egypt after Jerusalem was destroyed. He dies in Egypt. Um, Mm -hmm. There are so many Jews that they build uh, temples. There are two temples, at least, that were built in Egypt. Um, There were synagogues. Uh, there were large groups of jews i have a friend or uh, a colleague who just uh, a couple of weeks ago in the the biggest uh, biblical academic biblical conference called the society of biblical literature presented uh, new evidence where he's been translating a document that talks about um, jewish egyptians so you know we we, we had talked about you know like hyphenated americans they had a legal status of uh, greek egyptians and so on and so on and we know now that there were jewish egyptians because there's a significant population in uh, Egypt that um, there would have uh, they they gave them this kind of appellation. So, um, this is a, there are large groups of Jews. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint happened in Egypt because that's where you had a huge group of Jews that knew Greek very well. And that was done at about the same time that the papyri that Joseph Smith owned were created. Um, And so that's why this group of priests and thieves who are really interested in there and probably elsewhere, but the ones we know about are um, who are really interested in both Greek religion, Mesopotamian religion and Jewish religion and incorporating them into Egyptian religion. And so if there were some Jews that had stories of Abraham, I know that there were some Egyptians that were interested in them and were incorporating them into their religious rites. Now, that seems weird to me and you because we're monotheists, right? So we don't take other gods and religion and mix it with ours. But if you're a polytheist, yeah. then the more the merrier, right? You want to make every god mm. that you hear of happy. <laughs> yeah. And and so they were doing actively doing this, and it's interesting because the, the person who owned the papyrus that Thessalonians 1 was on was a priest in Thebes at the time period where we know there were large groups of Jews and where we know that they were using Jewish writings uh, and stories in Egyptian religious practice. So we would actually expect that uh, we know act, for, for absolute certain that they were collecting stories about Abraham. He was one of the most common characters they collected stories about and incorporating those stories about Abraham into their own religious um, practices. So we should actually expect that there were priests in Thebes that had writings about Abraham on papyrus. So, no big surprise if this particular priest in Thebes from that time period uh, that owned Faxon only one had writings of Abraham as well. Well, actually, expect that to be happening yeah well
0: that's that's really helpful kind of a left turn uh, uh question but i think yeah, when right. many people ask you
2: know or wonder about yeah so, well and, and i think it it again it, it works well with what we're talking about because people assume that oh why would a, an egyptian priest have writings about abraham that, that doesn't sense and so they they start to dismiss it and again we have to ask what do you actually know what's an assumption And what can the academic method tell us? Well, that's something the academic method can tell us, right? Now, it can't tell us that for sure the writings of Abraham were on the papyri, but it can tell us that it's it's, uh, plausible that they were on the papyri. And that's one of the things that we should also look at, is that the academic method can tell us something about plausibility, and then we have to turn to the revelatory method to know about something for sure.
0: Yeah. So in relation to some of these concerns, like uh, the Book of Abraham uh you know polygamy mm-hmm. book of mormon uh, historicity you know sometimes individuals i'll hear it like people say well i just don't i i love the book of mormon i know it's true i know it's the word of god but i don't think it's an historical record mm-hmm. or they may just dis- dismiss dr Thomas 132 if they have a huge issue with polygamy right. or they'll talk about maybe it wasn't exactly inspired or whatnot and first of all I'm just glad if these people are still showing up and sitting next to me in the pew at church cuz yeah. like great what what I'm just glad you're here like we have different beliefs but sometimes people may say well I just can't do the book of Abraham thing it just doesn't make sense I'm going to set it aside and just maybe skip those uh, first couple of weeks and and come follow me you know when the yeah. book of Abraham is referenced what do we miss or what does the if someone were to do that, what would they miss? Or what does the book of Abraham add to the, the core doctrine of the restored gospel?
2: Great question. So let, let me address both that question and, and something that you, you mentioned earlier. I, I okay. think uh, I agree with you. The church is, is uh, large enough. You know, my, my church chapel is large enough to accommodate someone who isn't sure about the historicity of the book of Mormon or the book of Abraham. Um, now, do I think that's the most viable answer from either an academic or a spiritual perspective? No, I don't. Am I happy to be sitting and worshiping with a person who doesn't think they're, they're historical? Yeah, I'll, I'll worship with them. Right. Uh, that's fine with me. Uh, I, don't jump out of the church because of that. Uh, there's, there's room for all of us, but I think that that spiritually and uh, really from an academic perspective, it's more viable to say that they are historical. I believe that, that there's real historicity in their anciently authentic documents. From both my my mental uh, process and my my we can say intellectual process and my spiritual process. So then, if we get into your question about the doctrine of the Book of Abraham, and this is why I would encourage people, if you're when you're searching search through all the books you can find, whatever else, but keep reading the Book of Abraham, because when you're reading the Book of Abraham, there is true and there is powerful doctrine, and I believe that if you're sincere right? And that's one of the things that we should mention here as well. We need someone who has questions to know that we're sincere in helping them, and hopefully we can help them here. I've sat down with people who I don't think were sincere to begin with, but because I was sincere about helping them on their journey, they actually became sincere as we work we this together. So what we need is someone who will sincerely be open to the revelatory method. Uh, if they're not, then we've got a, a, a problem that's a completely different kind of problem right but if we can get them to sincerely be open to the revelatory method the doctrines they encounter in the book of abraham the spirit will come and bear witness of them all right so what are those doctrines there are a couple that are really really key one um and and uh that we learn about this right away that the lord is intimately involved in our lives right he saves abraham now there are some people who are like Abraham standing up against idolatry in, in Isaiah, or Abraham chapter one um, that aren't saved. And I will assume that they went on to a happier, better life. Abraham actually had a really difficult life. Well, he would have been uh, just as good for him if he hadn't been saved, but it's not as good for us. He had a work that needed to be done, but God is intimately involved in his life. Second, the next chapter really focuses on, well, the beginning of the first chapter and then most of the second chapter focuses on the Abrahamic covenant. We understand some really key and elements of the Abrahamic covenant from Abraham chapter one and two that we don't get elsewhere. And you and I, in our, our time we visited on the podcast, talked about the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. It is absolutely key. President Nelson wants us to understand this covenant that we're going to be exalted. Understanding that covenant is really, really key. And and uh, the, the primary element of the covenant is establishing a relationship with God. So that's the, the second thing. The third thing is what the book of Abraham teaches us in Abraham chapter 3 about our relationship with God, including that this relationship began in premortality. We have a clearer teaching about premortality in Abraham chapter 3 than we do anywhere else in Scripture. And, And it's given in the context of that we are not at the same place God is. He is providing a place for us and circumstances for us to be tested, to be able to, with his help, arrive in the same place he is. And so really, in the end, all of the key elements and key stories in the book of Abraham come back as on our relationship with God and the opportunity to increase and have a closer relationship with God through his covenant and through his son. And because he's intimately involved in our lives and he wants us to have that kind of relationship with him. Those are beautiful And powerful doctrines that I believe if people really read with an open heart, they will have the opportunity to feel of God's love and to have an experience with him. And that's exactly what they need. Yeah.
0: And I love that advice of reading it from the perspective that it's valid, that it's revelation, that it's inspired. Even if, you know, maybe someone's really struggling with the book of Abraham, but encouraging them, hey, just for these 10 minutes or whatever, like just step into a world where this is actual revelation and, and see what these principles do to your heart. And yeah. I think that's when the change begins. And then the revelatory process will, will kick in hopefully soon yeah. after that.
2: Yeah, if we can get them to be open, say, hey, I'm open to reading, if, to reading all sorts of other things, but you need to be open to reading this with that open heart that you just talked about. I love the way you said that. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Well, uh, Carrie, what are we missing uh, here? I, I, uh, I don't know if we, everything on the outline that, uh, that you sent, but what other principles or thoughts do you want to make sure we hit before we wrap up? Uh,
2: I would, I would just say again, the book of Abraham can be an important case study. Um, there's no way you and I in these few minutes had time to talk about all the details we could talk about and all the complicated issues with alphabets and grammars and all sorts of other stuff that we could talk about with the book of Abraham. If we'd had a different topic that someone is struggling with, give ourselves an hour or five hours, we still wouldn't talk about all the complicated things. Uh, And so that's, that's part of what we need to recognize is that there are hosts of complicated issues and that's life is complicated. All right. And we're dealing with real people. Abraham's a real person. So he's going to have a complicated life and the way we get his text is going to be complicated. Um, but let's not get waylaid by those complications. Let's recognize them as pointing us towards our inability on our own to come to these answers and our need to get help from God. With these answers.
0: Yeah, love it. Any advice you'd have? Um in the context of come follow me, obviously we're in 2022, we're starting with the, uh, we're, we're jumping into the old Testament and the book yeah. of Abraham is referenced in many of the lessons in just looking at it here in January, in pops yeah. up in, in, in February as well. So any like general advice, as far as approaching the book of Abraham in the context of come follow me.
2: Yeah, I would say this revel in it. Uh, love it. I am so excited. The, the Pearl of Great Price is, in many ways, our most overlooked book of scripture. Um, and and it doesn't get, uh, it has not gotten a lot of airtime. Um, but with the Come Follow Me, and I'm so excited about the Come Follow Me program. I feel like, um, I'll, I'll just say my family, my ward, and my students at BYU, I feel like are learning the scriptures better than ever before. We're really getting into this. And the Pearl of Great Price got great airtime last year with the Joseph Smith history, uh, and it, we've got some serious study of the Book of Abraham and the Book of Moses uh, right here at the beginning of Come Follow Me for 2022. And so I would say revel in it. Be so glad that that we had this restored. And and I would also think in these terms with how we we haven't gone into the story of how Napoleon's invasion of Egypt makes it possible for in this really easy, complex story for the papyri to end up with joseph smith so that he can give us the book of abraham but it's just a fantastic story and, and fantastic in in a couple of ways wonderful and almost seems impossible that joseph smith in kirtland ohio could end up with papyri, again, yeah right yeah. um and uh it, it it seems to me that god really really wanted us to have what's in the book of abraham Uh, he went through all sorts of effort to get us the book of Abraham, to have Joseph Smith translate it and so on. Clearly there are things in there he wants us to get. And so as you approach it, say, wow, God wanted me to get something from this. What can, and should I get from it? What is the restoration perspective that I gained from this that I would, what wouldn't I understand without these books? And what does it teach me about my relationship with God? And if you'll approach it with those questions, I think you'll have just a fantastic time.
0: Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, uh, Gary, this has been really helpful, and uh, I, I'm excited to jump into Old Testament, especially after this conversation, and, and jump into the Pearl of the Great Price. So we sort of clump it with yeah. the Old Testament yeah. science. <laughs> yeah, that's all good. I don't yeah. want to overlook this this uh, book of scripture that often gets overlooked, but um, the any it, as far as if people want to check out your book any final plugs as far as obviously it's published by desert book they can get it at any yeah. desert book or major church bookstore any anything that you'd say about the, the the actual book that you've written about the book and they yeah
2: well so i think at least as of right now for some reason amazon hasn't picked it up but you can get it from like the church you know desert book and i think Siegel books is going to get it on there so that's probably your easiest way to get it but um I would just plug that series, and of course, I want to plug my own book, but I'd just plug that series as as a good, readable place um, to get answers to questions. So far, I think we've got uh, one on polygamy and one on um, uh, mental mental health health. issues, and Mm -hmm. then then the third one is the Book of Abraham. Um, But they are designed to be really readable and understandable, and then they have further reading so that if you want to get into more, you can get into more. And so, if that's what floats your boat, as it does mine then uh, okay. go ahead and, and jump into it. But I hope that it makes things understandable. Um, maybe I'll just say this then, that I'm trying to, because I've, I'm already having people uh, saying, okay, but what if I want to get deeper? And so uh, I'm trying to put, um, uh, I've got a little thing I created just for this kind of thing called outofthedust.org. Um, so out of the dust, all one word, outofthedust.org. And there's a brand page on there where I'm just trying to put, access to like if you want academic articles if you want videos if you want uh, other things for those who want more I'm trying to make more available to you i've actually got a page on there for understanding the old testament as well i, I just feel like these are topics uh, book of abraham book of moses and the old testament are topics that the saints are really they want to understand better but they struggle with uh, knowing how to understand it better and so i'm just trying to throw uh, everything we can onto the, these little pages to give people resources to help them understand this better. I want them to have a great experience under, uh, reading the book of Abraham and the old Testament, not a, not a frustrating experience. So, uh, hopefully they can find resources there that will make it a great experience.
0: Awesome. And the last question I have for you is, uh, considering all your time of research and study around the book of Abraham, um, how has the book of Abraham helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ?
2: Uh, you know, it has to do a little bit with what I was talking about right there at the end, and and maybe I'll just uh, roll it into a quick uh, personal story. Um, I've been teaching for uh, really about 15 years uh, about what we can learn from Abraham chapter three and how it's all about our relationship with God and how we should draw closer or how God wants us to draw closer to him. Um, for the last several years, as I've been teaching about the Abrahamic covenant, I've been teaching that the primary element of that is our relationship with God. Um, But it took me doing an education with two series of Education Week lectures where I was doing them both at the same time, one on uh, the book of Abraham and one on the Abrahamic Covenant. And it just so happens that I taught Abraham chapter three and the Abrahamic uh, Covenant uh, uh, in those two series on the same day and heard myself in both of them saying see this about your relationship with God to realize, oh, the whole book of Abraham is about your relationship with God and And having realized that, I've gone back and read it again, and I'm amazed at how much uh, God wants me to have a close relationship with Him and how much He wants me to become like Him so that that relationship can be closer. It, It really is almost overwhelming how much God wants that for us. And that gives me greater joy and determination to follow.
0: Any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library.